0: Hey, is uh, Steve Albini there?
1: Uh, Hold on one second.
0: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana, this podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. Hopefully by now you've had a chance to check out our new website, a newanglepodcast.com. Super excited about that. And thanks to our team of interns and Stefan Borsom for leading up the efforts there. They put a ton of effort into this thing. And I think it looks pretty darn good. So check it out. Let us know what you think and uh, tell your friends about it. Anyway, today's episode: Steve Albini, legendary Missoula native, sound engineer, musician. This guy is a big deal in the music industry, and he's a lot of interesting opinions about um, how music gets made and how it should be made, and uh, where value lies in that uh, in that industry. Uh, member of some pretty prominent bands, Shellac and Big Black, most prominently. Uh, He's the owner and operator of Electrical Audio in Chicago, which is a legendary sound studio. If you're interested in learning more about Electrical Audio and Steve's work, you should check out the episode of Sonic Highways. It's an HBO show and um, tons of great information there. Steve has worked with the likes of Nirvana, PJ Harvey, The Breeders, Foo Fighters, And he's got some very interesting views on value creation and creativity in music, and we talk about that today. Uh, What you'll probably see us dance around or hear us dance around is the notion that is capitalism really the right mechanism to be kind of the guiding structure of music? And Steve is a decided no on that, and it takes me a while to kind of figure out exactly how to ask him about that. Anyway, super interesting conversation. I really appreciate Steve's insights, his time, and his generosity. Uh, we'll turn it over to Steve Albini. So anyway, thanks for doing this. Um, no problem. Excited to have you on. You're a bit of a legend here at the University of Montana College of Business. In fact, you know you go Yikes. back. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, Jeff kind of overlapped with you in high school, but another uh, part of our family, Terry Carter. Um, from Hellgate High School. Apparently, he says he played drums with you in a band called Just Ducky back in the day.
1: Yeah, we had a we had a few drummers. We were pretty bad, and so the drummers didn't stick around very long.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, he remembers it fondly and was pretty excited that we were going to have the chance to chat today. Um, I'd love to start off with just kind of take us back to. Missoula in the '80s as a high school kid. I know you know you kind of left for Chicago for journalism, but um, uh-huh. what was it like growing up here? I mean, it's changed so much in the in the intervening years. Well,
1: uh, to people who are there all the time, I'm sure that change is apparent, you know. Uh, but when I come back, and uh, bear in mind, I left in the summer of 1980. Okay, and uh, I came back sporadically. My folks still lived there for a couple of years into the 80s. And then my dad took a position at um, Montana State in uh, Bozeman. And so uh, they moved out. And my brother at that point had moved to California and my sister had moved to Oregon. So uh, I didn't have any family in Missoula for Mm -hmm. the bulk of the 80s. And so I, I, I never went there. And I went back in the mid to late nineties on tour with my band shellac. Um, and that was the first time I'd been back in probably, well, more than 10 years. Wow! And it, it seemed very familiar. I mean, the geography and the, just the layout of the city is immutable. And that's makes a very strong impression on you when you live there, you know, just the, the feature landmarks of the Circle Square, the downtown area, the, you know, the Higgins Avenue Bridge, and then Hellgate, and the sort of sprawl that carries on toward the mall. I don't know, is the mall still there even?
0: Yeah, Southgate Mall has sort of just uh, been renovated, actually, so it's it's, it's sort of an experiencing a uh, renaissance of a sort.
1: The sort of social environment of missoula also seems like seems pretty consistent over the years you know there's a there's a a sort of a hint of uh um sophistication you know like maybe it might be an affectation but there's there's a a a little slightly more worldly frame of mind in missoula um you know there's a there's a whiff of progressive politics there's uh you know uh there's a there's a kind of an intersection between the sort of general montana leave me alone libertarianism and the sort of uh, hippie lefty uh be free in your mind and body kind of thing um that is pretty well embodied in missoula and uh i that was one of one of the principal things that I liked about it and the town is small enough that You know, there aren't that many bars, so you would see all kinds of people in at the watering holes, you know. Like, if you went to the Amvets or the Missoula Club or the Stockman, you would see, like, all kinds of people there all the time. Like, you'd see ranchers and students and artists and musicians and vagrants, you know. Right, and uh that's one of the th- one of the things that I like about the culture of Missoula is that everybody rubs elbows with everybody, and everybody gives everybody room to be whoever they are, you know,
0: yeah, and I think that's I think that's still true, however, it is um you know one of those things that is maybe under threat a little bit as the city grows i mean there's tremendous amount of development going on in the downtown mm-hmm. corridor, you know and and I don't want to get us too off topic but yeah it's it's a it's an issue that I think that the city and those involved in planning for the future will sort of have to address is how do we kind of maintain, should we maintain and how do we maintain that, uh, that spirit? Because you're right. It's sort of, uh, you know, come as you are and uh, anything goes kind of culture down there. So you, um, you left for Northwestern University to pursue mm-hmm. journalism, um, Tell us about- I didn't
1: really pursue journalism. <laughs> I was in a journalism program in college, and I got a degree in journalism. And I worked on newspapers as part of my the degree program. They set you up with um, a, a sort of a general assignment reporter position at a small-town newspaper. So I did that for a year or so. And then I, I wrote for, fanzine, for music fanzines, punk rock stuff. Okay. I didn't really pursue journalism.
0: So are you going to but Chicago that for the music good, scene? When
1: you say that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did, so then, were you going to Chicago solely? Well, not solely, but primarily for the music scene.
1: Well, when I came to Chicago it was to go to school, and it seemed like a nice um, sort of side side benefit that okay. there was a really active music scene here. And but eventually, over time, that sort of became my entire social circle and my entire professional existence was the music scene in Chicago. Um, but, it you know, when I came out here, it, it was to go to school to get a degree in journalism so I could get a job as a journalist. But while I was here, I got so ingrained in the music scene that my occupation, like whatever I was doing at the moment for a living, was really just a life support system for me being involved in music and me being involved in the the social milieu of the music scene.
0: Sure, and you're playing in in various bands, trying to make a go of it. And um, at what stage, you know, to talk about you know, sort of the 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 work you're doing both as a musician, but also starting to emerge as as somebody to go to for recording and production.
1: Well, the you used an interesting phrase there. You said, you know, I was played in various bands trying to make a go of it. And there's a, there's a perception in the mind of a lot of people who don't play music that, um, a goal of musicians is to be professional musicians. That is to have the band be successful and be their livelihood. Okay. Right. And, um, in my circles, that is, in the underground music scene and the punk rock scene, um, that would have been an insane fantasy. Mm. So no one ever harbored those notions. No one ever thought, yeah, this band is going to be my occupation. Okay. What they thought was, this band is going to be awesome, and I'm going to do it as long as I can. Right. So yeah. that was the frame of mind. I think it's it's important to make a distinction between the notion that a working musician uh, is only legitimate if it's his profession and the great, you know, overwhelming class of musicians like myself who are in bands because it's an awesome thing to do with your time and you're willing to work a full-time job to support it in the same way that I would support you do it to support a wife and family. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, um, with that frame of mind, you can do it a lot more because you're, you don't expect it to be popular. You don't expect other people to like it. You don't expect it to earn you a living. Um, and that was the frame of mind that all of my peer group had. So, um, we were we all genuinely felt like we were participating in a great cultural experiment whereby people like us were going to be making substantive art that was driven purely by our desire desire to do it and you know it it wasn't subsidized there was no um there were no patrons there was no market for it. There wasn't any no external means of support for any of it. And I think that's the thing that made that generation of underground music distinct was that it it was at its core separated from industry and commerce. Sure. It it was a thing that existed for its own sake.
0: Is there is there um, somewhat of a disdain for industry and commerce embedded in that perspective?
1: absolutely i mean yeah. if you if you are doing things for their own benefit for their own you know for the sake of them being awesome and you see people doing things for the sake of acquiring cachet or popularity or fitting to to fit in with a, a preordained concept or preordained market right it's hard to restrain yourself from being derisive toward that because Mm -hmm. that just seems like it's a mockery of something, you know? Um, And it it must be the way NFL players felt about arena football or um, the, you know, Hooters football or whatever, all the other things. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's just, it just didn't seem like that was, It didn't seem like that that mindset should be taken seriously because that was, you know, that's where all the chumps were, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to make a living in a cover band or, um, you know, adopting the latest hairstyle or, you know, getting a publicist and trying to get on MTV or whatever. Like all of that stuff, you know, that that stuff was was held in disdain by people who were making music for its own sake. And you asked how that how that progressed into being uh, you know my professional life, and when you're in a band in a community like that, which is a very close knit group of you know a hundred or so people, um, everybody knows everybody else's business. You know, everybody knows when somebody else puts a gig together. Everybody knows when somebody's having a party. You know, if somebody's going to put a record out, it's you know big news. If there's a new issue of the the local fanzine comes out, that's big news. Like everybody knows everything. So in, in a close-knit community like that, if you make yourself useful to the community of musicians, and that's what I strive to do, was to make myself useful as an engineer to you know someone who could do make recordings of bands, then word travels fast, and then pretty soon you your peer group, which grew out of your circle of friends gradually becomes your client base Hmm. and and then over time you haven't you're you're doing enough work that that it can sustain itself and you can quit your straight job and that's what happened to me
0: so you know within that like how do you i guess i'm trying to to understand these dynamics of I I understand sort of the, the the perspective that you're talking about that imposing these market forces on the creative is just 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 the wrong framing yet as you're kind of approaching your 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 passion as a musician doing it because it's awesome is there ever this you know how do you view it when when people say like okay how do I get paid for this, or, or how do I make this my life such that I don't have to do that day job? Is that is just the yeah, just is even that, thinking like about said, that selling out? or never crossed anybody's mind. Never crossed anybody's uh, mind.
1: We, I, when I put out my first record in 1980 or 81, I, uh, 1981, it never occurred to me that I would make money off of it. Okay. All I wanted to do was get the record out, and hopefully it would pay for itself, and then I, then I'd get my— initial investment back and I could do it again. You know, and that record paid for itself. And then I had enough money that I could make another record and that record paid for itself. And then other people wanted to put our records out and that took the burden of paying for it off of my back. And so then I was able to put records out kind of at whim and that was that was the success to me. Not you know I'm proud of the fact that my bands have always turned a small profit here. You know, I've never been on a tour that didn't earn money. I've never put out a record that's lost money. I'm proud of that, not not because I think that being a successful businessman is anything to be proud of by itself, but because those are indications that I wasn't wrong about whether or not this stuff had value, Mm. you know.
0: And so, for for you, like, how do you kind of how do how do you make a determination as to whether something has value or not? I mean, you're 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 playing live shows; people show up, people buy the record. That's an indication, not so much that the commerce piece of it's working, but people are are liking the art. Is that what's? Well,
1: I think I think every credible band goes about their business with. I'm not going to say complete indifference but near complete indifference to what the audience wants okay um i think the you know all of the great bands all the bands that inspired me all the music that has really turned me on over the years was clearly the product of some kind of mania like the single-mindedness of the people making it is one of the characteristics that that makes it invigorating that right. makes it endearing uh and that can only be done if you are willing to reject the notion of market-driven enterprises. If you are doing something because you, as the creator, are the arbiter of whether it has value or not, you, you're you the only person that you have to please. And when you have pleased yourself, you are done. And then you can release it into the world and see if anybody else wants to play along, but the... the main feature of it is that you're doing it to please yourself. And I think all credible music is a a quite selfish enterprise. Mm -hmm. It's being done to satisfy the person doing it. You know, I feel like the creative impulse is innate in the same way that the sex drive and hunger and all that sort of stuff are. And so when someone is creating something, they're satisfying a need in themselves uh, and the satisfaction of having done it is very much like the satisfaction of having eaten a meal. You know that you, when you have accomplished something, then that drive, that that impulse, has been quieted for the moment, uh, and you know it it it'll arise again for sure. But for the moment, you have satisfied yourself, and that's really all that matters. Sure. You know, and then. You release records because you, you want there to be some public acknowledgement of this stuff that you're working on. Uh, but genuinely, I think I, – I mean, I know this is true for my bands, and I'm fairly certain it's true for all of my friends' bands, is that if other people don't like it, it doesn't make you think it's worth less, mm. you know?
0: Yeah i yeah I, I it's it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective i mean it makes it makes total sense that if you're you know you you're doing it for the intrinsic value to yourself and to your bandmates and but yet you know even even putting something like art in some form of art out there, there is this external validation that comes from the approval or the acceptance or the praise that you get from other people and, and it kind yeah, of Yeah,
1: but I think it's easy to oversell that. Okay. Like when some when you if you sell records and you make money, that's nice. Mhm. But but it doesn't change it doesn't change your perception of how good what you've just done is, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I you know, I I'll, I'll give I'll give you another example. There's a, a singer from Chicago named Robbie Folks. Okay he's um he's done a lot of different kinds of music from bluegrass to traditional country and western to you know more abstract ensemble stuff he's um has very eclectic tastes he's a really smart guy he's a fantastic musician he's been plugging away at it his whole career you know thirty plus years in the trenches making records and playing shows and doing that as his l- life's work and as the thing that animates him for his entire adult life and last year he was finally nominated for a couple of grammys right something that he i'm sure would have appreciated at any point in his career but it happened you know last year for him and if you asked him then or now this record that was just nominated for two Grammys, is that your best record? Mm. He would say, yeah, probably not. You know, it's one of my records. It's a good one, but it, it's probably not the best one. And But that's the one that is has suddenly drawn the attention of the otherwise ignorant public. Right. So, uh, uh, and that, that's, I, I'm sure, I'm certain that's true for any serious person that's, mm-hmm. that's in the creative field is that they do things and they value their own creative output based on standards that only they understand. And then, you know, the degree of satisfaction they feel in it is related to their sense of accomplishment and execution of an idea. Sure. If other people like it, you know, good for them, then they get to have a little piece of it too. But we're doing it for ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's what you're describing just sounds like the essence of creativity and the essence of art in a way. And then, and then that actually transitions into this, this, you know, I've heard you speak about how messed up the indus- the music industry is. And may- maybe this is the fundamental reason why, if you impose these market forces on a creative process that just shouldn't does, doesn't, is not congruent with market forces.
1: Well, I, being fair most of my complaining about the music business was during the nineties when there was a music business.
0: Okay. Yeah. So maybe tell (laughs) us that history a little bit
1: or, or rather when the music business was a synonym for the record business. Mm. Right. And that was the case through the nineties and drizzled on into the new millennium. But, um, the record business really is now like a small sidecar, to the music business, which on a pop music scale is about celebrity and stardom. But on on the scale that I'm familiar with, um, on the working musician scale, it's about live performance primarily, and making recordings as a document of the progress of your music over time. So the recordings tend to be seen more as documents than products. Whereas during the record business era, the recordings were the product. And if the band could tour and make people buy more records, that was great. But that didn't really matter so long as people bought records. And now the records are more of an inducement to get people to come see the live performance because that's where all the money is.
0: A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana.
1: This is Sam Schultz, and you're listening to A New Angle.
0: Well, do you think that actually ends up um, bringing the market back around to a, a, a premise that you'd be more accepting of, that the, if, the, if the records are just documents you know, and, and not designed well, to make a profit—
1: well, records it during the during the heyday of the record business, um the making of the records was done at the behest of the record labels primarily. Yeah, right? And now records are made at the behest of the people whose name is on the cover. Like if somebody wants to make a record of his music, he does. It's rare that someone is making a record to satisfy a contract. Where, that obliged them to make a record, whereas that was commonplace in the 80s and the mm. 90s, you know. Um, so uh, I feel like the the impetus behind making records now has shifted, and the control and the direction and almost every aspect of it is now under more firm control of the bands, of the people whose name is on the cover. And that suits me tremendously. Sure. because. I, you know, I, as as an engineer who works for those people, I much prefer to be able to turn to the person sitting next to me and say, uh, are you happy with that? Can we move on? Rather than having to them say, I don't know, let's send a rough mix to the office and see what the office says, you know, like that, that sort of thing just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. I mean, in being, being fair, it was rare in the circles that I traveled in, but it did happen, <clears throat> and and that thing just that just doesn't happen anymore. So that suits me tremendously. The collapse of the record business has been great for music and great for musicians. It's given the musicians much more more control over their recordings. It's made the recordings much more representative of what the bands had in mind and much less uh subject to the pressures of uh the external pressures of the marketing departments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just been a a tremendous boon to bands. Um, It does mean that there's less work making records because there are fewer records being pumped out. Um, But that also means that the records that are being made are, generally speaking, somebody's life's work. And someone is very heavily vested in making this record, and so it means a lot to them. So it's much more satisfying to work on.
0: Maybe talk about how that has, you know, how that trend has interacted with your work at Electrical Audio and, and the dynamics within the studio. And I know you've said it's in other places that it's been one of those projects that's, you know, institutions really that's been, you know, on the verge of, of bankruptcy on a couple of different times. How how have these forces kind of played out in, in, in terms of the studio?
1: Well, when we opened the studio, I started making records informally in the 80s okay and then i bought a house in 1985 or 86 somewhere in there and and i built a studio in that house and then i operated out of that house until for the better part of 10 years um and then we bought the building that electrical audio is in in 1995 and spent a year and a half or so building it out and then the first sessions were done here in the spring of 97 um so now for more than 20 years now we've been making records out of this building and so that's a pretty long stretch in the in the life cycle of the of an of a business or an industry mm-hmm. you know so i've seen a lot of things change and the, the biggest change has been that this the dumb money doesn't exist anymore okay <laughs> in the 90s there was this kind of a feeding frenzy where the big record labels were trying to find the next nirvana or whatever and so yep there was a lot of dumb money being thrown around just on a whim. People were being signed and being sent into the studio to make a record. And, um, we didn't get a lot of that, uh, stupid money business, but we got some. And then the carrying on effect of that was that the smaller, more smaller independent labels also had more money to play with because there was a big upturn in the interest in rock bands. So, um, So independent labels had more money and they were making more records and we did get a a lot of that business. Our primary clientele has always been independent and underground musicians making their own records or um, making records at the behest of small record labels.
0: And so within that, I mean, your studio has emerged as kind of this, you know, legendary place where musicians go to kind of experience. I've heard people say like, you have this signature sound, but then all the, at the same time, I've heard you talk about how your job is to document exactly what the band sounds like. So can you talk a little bit about your approach to to sound and, and capturing where a band is at a particular moment, or where a musician is at a particular moment?
1: Well, one of my formative experiences as a, as a guy in a band was seeing one of my friend's bands go into a small studio at the time and get started on a session to try to record a record. And the engineer on that session wasn't from our circle. He wasn't a punk rocker. Okay. So like, they showed up with this crappy drum kit and instead he wanted them to play on the nice studio drum kit. Mm. And the guitar player had a really abrasive guitar sound. And when he set up his amp and started blasting like normal, the engineer was, you know, trying to talk him out of it and trying to convince him that it would record better if it wasn't as loud and things like that. And and I just saw this kind of an intrusive process yeah. that was all done with the best intention. You know, this guy, he wanted to help. He wanted to do something to improve, in his mind, this raw, uh, uns- untutored, unskilled band he wanted them to, their record to be more professional, right? Mm-hmm. He thought he was doing them a favor by mediating their mania somewhat, right? And I, as a fan of the band, saw that what had happened was that he had actually blunted the sharpest points of that band sure. and made that band less true to my experience of them and less valuable because they were less different from everything else. Right. So that was a formative experience for me. And and I've tried not to be that guy on the sessions that I run. So if a band comes in with a bunch of odd quirks that I don't understand, I don't immediately, I don't assume that they're doing it wrong. Mm. What I assume is that I don't yet understand it. And I have to, my job as an engineer is to go along with them until I can see things from their perspective and then I can start participating in the conversations. But up until that point, I'm, I'm ignorant and, and it's my job to stay out of their way, right? So that's where the, that's one of the root causes of my behavior in the studio is that I don't wanna be the guy that weakens a record by trying to improve it you know, um, and uh, that has taught me a lot of things. Like um, on many occasions, I've worked on records that baffled me at the time. And then as I got more familiar with the band and the music, I came to appreciate what was unique and, in fact, great about music that completely went by me initially, Mm -hmm. right? Every kind of music has its own soul and its own, purity and its own reason. And if you let it be, if you let it be itself, then you have the potential to learn from it. But if you're always trying to manipulate things so that they fit your paradigm and your perception, your preconception of music, then you're cheating yourself out of the experience of learning from all of this new and different music that you're exposed to. I had that frame of mind kind of confirmed for me There was a, I had dinner with John Peel, the great BBC DJ, uh, who had run a groundbreaking radio program for the better part of 40 years where he was constantly exposing new music to his audience. And his shows were inspirational. You were always hearing something that you'd never heard before, and it was always great, right? And he listened to new music that had been sent to him that he was ignorant of. He was listening to that music for hours every day. Stuff would come in in the mail and he'd try to listen to every single thing that people sent him, right? What an incredible, overwhelming deluge of material that was. Mm -hmm. And I was just in awe of his diligence and his respect for those people and, and putting hours of his day every day into educating himself about new music. And he said something I thought was really brilliant. He said that if he heard a record and he didn't like it, he didn't assume from that that it was a bad record. He just assumed that he didn't understand it. Yeah. No one, in his mind, no one would go through the trouble of recording and releasing a record and then sending it to him if they thought it was bad. Mm -hmm. They did that because there was something that they thought was great in there. And if he is deaf to it for the moment, the failing is on his, on him. Right. And when I'm in the studio, often a band will do something in the studio and I'll think that there's something has gone wrong in a take or whatever. And I'll draw their attention to it and say, Hey, was that supposed to happen there? And they'll say, Oh yeah, that's how it goes. It goes that way every time. Um, And then, that's a moment of enlightenment for me where i thought they were making a mistake but in fact it was a listener error yeah. it was a, it was a mistake on my part to presume that the music was going to go in one direction when in fact it didn't sure. right so uh i i feel like that concept has been key for me to be able to adapt to record many different styles of music and many different kinds of people without being judgmental and without you know trying to steer people into a particular sonic direction.
0: Is there, is there a particular example with a, with a particular band that stands out as, as a, you know, a moment where that, that perspective kind of solidified for you?
1: Well, one example of a band that I didn't really get initially, but then became one of my favorite bands, was uh, there's a longstanding sort of um, art rock band from Chicago called Cheer Accident and they've been going for a very long time but the core aesthetic of the band the experimental nature of the band and their commitment to certain progressive musical ideas has been there from the beginning um and my first exposure to that band didn't get it 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 sounded retrograde and like sort of like an archaic kind of prog rock and i, I really didn't didn't appreciate it uh-huh. as a fan i didn't appreciate it I worked on one of their records, and as an engineer, it presented a bunch of interesting challenges as an engineer that I enjoyed solving. Like, I enjoyed working on the record from a technical standpoint, but I didn't get the music at all. Then, the more I was exposed to their music, the more of their music I heard, and I, I listened to prior releases, and I listened to later releases, and I worked on more of their music you know, decades down the line, um, I, I have begun to you know you begin to see the thread of continuity through all of these projects over the years and you begin to appreciate exactly how great the arc of a single idea can be that it can go for decades and permute many 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 times go through many many permutations and uh, it's just you know there there's a good example of a band that's easy to miss on casual listen but then the more you pay attention to them the more you realize that, yeah, they're fucking geniuses, you know.
0: So, you know, as you're, as you're laying out that story, Steve, it, it makes me kind of think, uh, you know, and I just watched the Sonic Highways episode that featured you over the weekend, and, you know, your experience with Nirvana, you've spoken about that well and, and, and you know, in a bunch of other platforms, but what occurred to me um, watching that episode is that, you know, Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters, they came back to you, and wanted to document the work that you do and the contributions you make. Have, have is that maybe the process of of realization about your perspective in reverse occurring with people like Dave Grohl and, and other musicians? Have they come to learn the value of your perspective on the industry and the process and where the value is?
1: Uh eh, I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like the industry collapsed of its own weight. Okay. You know, the fact that I was right about how crooked it was doesn't have any bearing on the fact that it just failed to be. It's no, it became no longer profitable. Right, right. It didn't collapse from some kind of moral pressure. <laughs> the the industry collapsed because they couldn't squeeze any more blood out of a, out of the artichoke. You know? Sure, sure. <laughs> and. But I guess yeah, I mean I, for
0: for a band like Nirvana that they kind of they they went through this sausage making process and you kind of. You know, we're we're part of that, not not a contributor to the sausage, if you will, but um, you know. But then a guy like Dave Grohl comes back, and you know, he's in the heart of it at, at, within Nirvana. But then he comes back and and maybe says, well, actually, you know, Steve had this really important perspective that maybe we weren't courageous enough or 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 whatever, powerful enough at the moment to to realize. Does that framing make sense?
1: Well, I don't know. I didn't. I I don't I don't buy the sort of mythological parallels, you know, where I'm the seer that no one believes or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't really buy that. I feel like I had a perspective that was based on my perception and my experience with certain, a certain part of the music business. If you had been insulated from that part of the music business and you had only had good experiences, then you would think I was a lunatic, you know, Um, and rightly so. So I feel like I feel like my perspective at the time was valid at the time because I wasn't speaking wishfully. I was speaking based on observations. You know, um, there's a there's a kind of a fantastic notion of being a musician where you write a few songs, somebody hears them, they are inherently valuable. Um, then you you have a career and you are a you know, you can live the rest of your life based on your, this one period of creative productivity, right? And that, that kind of fairy tale just isn't practical at the moment. You have to be continually doing work and continually putting stuff out in order to have a viable career as a musician now. Um, And I think the people in the punk rock underground appreciated the productivity and the creativity and didn't really see the value in trying to do it as a day job. And and I think that perspective is now more common just because the the psychic reward of executing a creative concept is now the same or greater. And the carrot of the potential rock star status is now much weaker of an attractor you know mm. it's it's much less likely that people will think yeah i'm gonna be a star and sell a bajillion records i think there are there are other avenues to starsh- stardom now that people who are eager for stardom rather than creative satisfaction can exploit you know just look at things like the rise of the YouTube star or mm-hmm. the Instagram celebrity or whatever. Like, there are means of acquiring celebrity now that don't have anything to do with your creative output, and and so the the two are less conflated, you know.
0: Yeah, although and that's a
1: pro- that's a product of a of a general change in the culture. And it's I don't think that there was a eureka moment on the part of the artistic community that was like, hey, now we can be pure artists because we don't have to sell records anymore. You know, yeah. I don't think thats I don't think that happened. I think it's just, you know, the the notion like the, the concepts of celebrity and uh, creative output have diverged and they're no longer even even partially bound.
0: Right, and, and the pathways to success on either dimension are are a little bit more clear because the two are not as conflated, I would think.
1: Yeah, and there are a lot more options for both. Like, right, if right. you are in a band now and you want to put your music out, you no longer need to press up a record. You can record a band practice on your iPhone and put it up on YouTube that evening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the following morning, you can have a a million people could have seen it, (laughs) you know, like that's that is an incredible development in terms of, you know, the sort of raw communication aspect of the creative enterprise. The fact that that there is no barrier now to you presenting your music to the world is fucking fantastic. You know, when I wanted to put my record out, I had to save up a bunch of money. I had to record a record, I had to mix it, I had to save up a bunch of money, I had to get jackets printed, I had to get the record mastered, I had to get the records pressed and shipped to my apartment, I had to lug them up the stairs, I had to try to convince people to buy them over the phone. (laughs) It was just so much more work. And and now, literally, you could do the whole operation on your cell phone in the span of an evening.
0: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so what is, I mean, that's going to put a lot of pressure on your studio in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: I mean, in terms of, you know, just because it, it's so much easier to do um, a sort of passable job of recording now. Yeah. The, the perceived value of big professional studios like ours has, has kind of dwindled. And, you know, that's reflected in the pricing of the studios. Like studio rates now for big professional studios are a fraction of what they were in the Mm nineties. You know, we're getting, we are getting less than half what we were getting for our, as just the, the rental rates of the studio, um, just because there's less money available. And, uh, so there are fewer records being made. And so now when the records are being made, they're being made with an eye toward minimizing the cost.
0: Okay. One of the things, you know, as we kind of try to land this ship a little bit, one of the things that's important to us here at the College of Business, we have um, an entertainment management program and tons of kids trying to get into the entertainment management industry on a variety of dimensions. We have a lot of students that go to film, a lot of students that go into the music industry, and um, some of them artistically inclined, others more interested in the business side. Uh, what kind of advice would you have to a young college student who's wanting to break into the music industry? I mean, there, I know there's so many dimensions there, but yeah, you know, what I what mean, kind of perspective would set you well, up being, for...
1: Being frank, yeah, I'm the wrong person to ask about that, because I have always avoided any obligation to anyone like a manager or an agent or anything like that. I've sure. never had a manager, I've never had an agent, um, and I, I don't... I don't see those positions as valuable. What's happening more and more now is that bands and artists are maintaining control of all aspects of their career because it has gotten easier.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Right. So there's less need for a manager. If, you, if you're not going to have contracts with a record label, you don't need a, a manager and a lawyer to argue terms for you. Uh, if you are going to be contacted directly by a festival that wants to book you as a performer, then you don't need a booking agent as an intermediary. Yep. You know. Uh, so one of my complaints about the music business uh, during the tenure when the music business was the biggest problem – was that there were so many people so many people in management and right, A&R right. and the administration of everything
0: All the every man. single
1: one of them siphoning money out of the stream that was ultimately that that would otherwise have been headed toward the person whose name's on the cover sure. you know so if you're in a band and your band is earning money and someone else says hey I'm going to do some of the work for you for a percentage my rule of thumb has always been that that person is being overpaid. If mm-hmm. they're if they're taking a percentage of your income to do some of the work, then you're overpaying
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess at the at the core of your advice is if you want to get into the music business, play music. Create music.
1: Yeah, it seems like more and more you know, as a viable business, musicians are running their careers like small businesses now. You yeah. know, they're Budgeting things carefully, keeping the costs low, uh, managing their tours like, you know, business projects where there's a certain capital outlay and a certain expected income. And you just make sure that everything is uh, – make sure that the book balances in such a way that you turn a profit when it's all over with. Yep. And all of that stuff is much easier to do now because there are so many more tools available to help you do it. And communication is so much easier. Uh, so I – you know, If you are a musician, I strongly urge you to learn the ins and outs of all of the business propositions that are going to be presented to you. Like when you're negotiating with a venue for a gig, get a line item of costing of everything that they're taking out of exactly. the, the gate before you start discussing what your percentages should be. So that you can see if they're paying themselves twice for hiring security staff and then also having a, a general staff deduction. Or if they're charging you for advertising for ads that they are buying regardless, things like that. Like if, if they if you're being if the if there are costs built into the overhead of a show which are actually extra profit, you need to know about it because that's going to affect your negotiations with them. So it, like, I strongly urge people to learn every aspect of the their business, but I don't advise getting a separate business manager unless you are doing so much work, so much touring, so much other stuff, that there aren't enough days in the week for you to execute both jobs. Right. And in that case, you know, you 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 then do need to enter into a professional relationship with somebody um but I don't have a lot of advice for that because I've always been able
0: to avoid it. Sure, you're you on know? the other side of that. Um, yeah. I guess one last question for you if you got another moment, Steve. But sure you know I've I've heard through various sources that are you know and learned that you know poker at a high level is a big part of your life. And uh it makes me wonder in the context of all these sort of industry forces, which is the bigger gamble? Playing poker or running a studio.
1: Oh, running a studio is a much bigger gamble for <laughs> sure. So. I have a lot more money tied up in the studio than I would ever put at risk in a in in poker. Like my my working bankroll for poker is, you know, 10 grand or so, something like that. Like I just want to make sure I have 10 grand liquid so that I can play in the biggest games that are available to me. Um and but I've got, you know, several million dollars tied up in the studio and if yeah. it goes tits up, all that money is gone.
0: Indeed. Well... Yeah.
1: Running a studio is an enormous gamble on a, on a month-to-month basis. Um, we, You know, it's very difficult to cover your expenses as a professional recording studio. The, the daily overhead is just enormous. And, uh, you know, a couple of bad months and we could be out of business. Mm-hmm. But knock wood, we haven't had a couple of bad months in a row for more than 20 years. So,
0: Well, we'll be respectful of that, uh, those dynamics, respectful of your time, and let you get back to it. Thanks a lot, Steve. We really appreciate it. Anything else we can do for you?
1: Nope.
0: Cool. Well, super, good. super talking to you. Thanks for the time. All right. All right. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Steve as much as I did. And, uh, I hope to actually pick his brain again and just start out with, Hey man, tell me everything you think that is wrong with capitalism. And we'll, we'll, we'll sort of build an episode around that theme. So stay tuned. Okay. Coming up next week, another, uh, important conversation for this community in particular. Uh, I got the chance to speak with Vanessa Gregoriadis. Vanessa is a prominent writer, journalist, investigative reporter, and she's written a powerful book called Blurred Lines. It's all about consent and sexual assault on college campuses, and this is a particularly important issue in many communities, but uh, very important here as we've had our... uh, had our very public struggles with this issue. So I look forward to that conversation with Vanessa next week. Stay tuned. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you've been listening long enough to know that these guys are big and that they sell pretty much everything electrical you would ever need. But you might not know that they hire a ton of University of Montana students. If you want to learn more about careers at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Kamsar, Elizabeth Willie, interns, Aspen Runkle, Mason Dow, and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO for the tunes, and finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag, anewangle, when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.